and welcome to the Horn Call podcast, the official podcast of the International Horn Society. My name is James Bolden. I'm the publications editor for the IHS and your host. Starting a podcast has been a dream of mine for quite some time, and when the opportunity to do so and my role with the IHS presented itself, I got very excited. This is going to be a monthly feature uh, to talk about um, people who have written articles for the the horn call, uh, interviews with horn players from around the world, information on news and events, and uh, all kinds of other horn-related stuff. I hope that you'll tune in regularly um, to this podcast, which you can download wherever you get your podcasts or uh, by visiting hornsociety.org, which I hope that you do if you enjoy today's interview. And I also hope you'll join the International Horn Society and support this wonderful organization that has done so much for the horn. Getting to the interview, uh, my guest today is the president of the International Horn Society, Dr. Andrew Pelletier. He's a Grammy Award-winning chamber musician, soloist, clinician, teacher, uh, all-around uh, great guy, really interesting conversation with him. We cover a variety of different topics Um some, some funny and some very serious. Uh, so I hope that you will enjoy this conversation with Andrew Pelletier. All right, and my guest today is the one, the only, Dr. Andrew Pelletier, president of the International Horn Society. Oh, it's great to be with you. Famous and infamous, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this is really exciting. And, uh, you know, we were talking before I, before I hit record. This is kind of a new thing, obviously, for for me and and for, um, you know, the, the IHS to have this kind of a podcast. There, there was one in the past that was basically kind of a forum for uh, vintage recordings from previous symposia and that sort of thing, which I, I loved it. I, I, it was about 10 or 12 years ago that those were coming out regularly. And I actually, I missed it when it went away. <laughs> so, um, no, that was, that was uh, something I really, really enjoyed listening, you know, like the master classes with John Barrows. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, it was great when Dan was able to put those up on the website, um, only for historical reasons, but pedagogical reasons. There's some great stuff in there. And um, yeah, it's, I'm so glad that you brought up this concept of doing a whole new podcast series for the society because we, we really need to do it. Um, there's a lot of interesting things going on in the horn world and, you know, it's nice to chat about it and meet new people. And, and it's, for me, it's interesting. This is actually my first podcast. So I'm new to all of this. <laughs> well, this, this is going to be really fun. Um, and it seems like I just saw you because I just did, right? <laughs> we were... Yeah, we were we were pretty busy last week, and you were especially. Do you want to talk a little bit about what was going on? Yeah, well, so most of the membership of the, of the Horn Society doesn't know that our advisory council, being truly international, traditionally the only time that we could meet really as a group in one room and cover a majority of the year's work to come for the year ahead is usually the weekend before the symposium starts. So usually from Friday evening, sometimes Friday afternoon, all of Saturday, all of Sunday, the advisory council is meeting and covering everything for the, the next year, the budget programs, new ideas, uh, elections of advisory council members, honorees, awards. So it ends up usually being somewhere between 
uh, 13 and 16 hours of meeting in the course of two and a half days. Plus, traditionally, that first concert of the symposium features the Advisory Council Horn Ensemble. So in breaks, in these big meetings, we'd also run off and have like a horn ensemble rehearsal, grab a meal, go back to meetings. And then there have been um, symposiums in the past where we literally, as the Advisory Council, would finish the last voting of the last meeting minutes before we have to grab our horns and walk on stage to play the opening concert of the symposium. <laughs> That's amazing. And yeah, you mentioned that. And I was like, wow, okay, well, that never showed though, because I mean, the, the performances are always great. And yeah, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it wakes you up. Um, I, if memory serves correct, that happened um, at Ithaca and also in uh, Natal, Brazil, where we finished right before we had to walk on stage and play. Uh, and so this year is no different, except we um, did our meetings virtually you know, through Zoom. And uh, <laughs> with time zones, we couldn't do all of the meetings kind of in one big stretch like we normally did. So we had to do these kind of four hour chunks on several on three days and, and it all worked out. But yeah, you've got to sit through your first set of marathon IHS meetings. <laughs> no, it was, it was great. And you know, uh, I've been in the IHS a long time, but getting to see kind of how the organization works and how it's run was really fascinating. I mean, I can't, you know, I've been on committees and familiar with that kind of structure, but um, I think a lot of, a lot of IHS members don't really know exactly how the whole thing is put together. Do you want to, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, for instance, what, what the president does and then, you know, how the, 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 the organization is structured? Sure. Um, well, it's kind of two bodies that function in different ways for the society. You have the executive committee, which is the president, the vice president, the executive director, and the secretary treasurer. Uh, and we meet very frequently throughout the year, at least monthly, sometimes twice, three times a month. And it's all in the name. We're the executive committee. We're kind of charged to execute uh, the ideas of the society and the, the, the uh, votes of the advisory committee. So we come up with policy, new ideas, um, various new initiatives. Those will get then get bounced off the advisory committee. The advisory committee is a 15-member body that votes on everything. They, everything that is approved for the society goes to the advisory council. Uh, so occasionally we'll have to call extra meetings of the AC, uh, sometimes through electronic voting, sometimes through a, some kind of web chat service like Zoom or Skype or something like that. Um, so those are the two bodies, but then there are a host of committees that go on through the year doing very specific tasks, a budgeting committee, social media committee, uh, publications, all sorts of different committees that if you uh, have been to any of the general meetings of the IHS at the end of a symposium, we'll be having one this August 8th, um, you get reports from all of those committees. You can see what's going on in the society. We do have IHS staff, uh, publications editor, James, uh, <laughs> executive director, uh, and web manager are their own professional staff that, you know, put out what the advisory council approves and, and charts to do. There's so much going on behind the scenes. Oh. 
constant, absolutely constant. Yeah. And so beyond these two kind of big governing bodies and the staff on as a third body, there is just a host of volunteers. At its core, the IHS is a volunteer organization. And so as president, I, I find a lot of what I do is inspiring and kind of charging people to take ownership of the society for themselves and volunteer to do things. Well, uh, I, I got to ask you then, so how does one end up becoming the president of the International Horn Society? <laughs> what, what, was, what was your path to this? Uh, um, well, I have to admit, and I told this to the AC when I got elected, that I, I am one of those kind of freakish people that back when I was in high school and had my first love affair with the International Horn Society and joined, I fantasized and dreamed about it someday being president and, and helping the society grow and move. So, well, it begins by being elected onto the advisory council. Uh, and then when the, if the presidency opens up, uh, you're hopefully are nominated by someone on the AC and you're elected by the advisory council. One of the things that I'm kind of working on all the time as president is I try to, I think of it like I have to function in three different time zones at the same time. That every action I do, every thought I do has to be knowledgeable of the tradition and the past of the society, what we've done, what's our history, initiatives we've tried before, our tradition, basically. Sure. But I also have to respond to the events in the present and what's going on right now and what the society needs right now. But I can't just be reactionary. I also have to be thinking about where the society, I think, may need to go, may want to go in the future, and how to prepare for that so that we're not constantly reacting to events, but we're actually trying to chart a path forward. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that's, you know, we're, <laughs> we are not alone in that, in that pretty much every organization around the world has had to, to, to cope with yeah, this. Yeah, this year's been a fun challenge. I mean, it's, it's taken every norm and thrown it out the window. Yeah. I mean, even, even without, you know, leaving out COVID-19 and all of that, 2020 was going to be, it was just going to be a pivotal year for, for a number of reasons, you know, so, um, well, and, and speaking of COVID-19, um, do you want to talk a little bit about what, what you've been up to in terms of, uh, you know, horn playing or otherwise during this, this whole quarantine lockdown period? Do you want to, I mean, we can walk it back to, I guess, March, if you want to go back to, to then. And if you, you know, you're like the rest of us, we were doing our performing and teaching and that yeah, sort of thing. I mean, I, uh, I'm very fortunate and very lucky in that I've had a, a fairly well to very active performance schedule. Um, and so the, the first kind of big shock that hit me was like a lot of full-time performers, I went from one or two to three concerts a week to none. <laughs> so that was the first kind of big hit. Uh, I think I'm kind of blessed though, in that I am one of your crazed obsessive practicers. I've, <laughs> I've always been one of those people. I just, I, I just enjoy the act of playing the horn, the physical act of it. So, in fact, in the summer times, I'm always someone that has to be careful. I'll practice to the point of injury. I mean, I'll bruise myself and I have to take a few days off just because I will lose track of time. And next thing you know, I've, you know, I'm thinking, why can't my B-flats come out cleanly on the top of the staff anymore? Oh, I've been playing for four and a half hours and 
been beating the heck out of myself. So um, I had to create um, goals. That's not really a good word, but kind of challenges to myself so that I wasn't just keeping my chops up, but trying to advance the technique, trying to advance what I can do on the horn. And the first thing that came to mind for me was the Arbenz book. You know, the, oh, yeah, the, yeah. The Grand Conservatory Method for the Cornet. It, at Bowling Green State University, where I teach, I teach a brass literature, history, and pedagogy class, which I mm -hmm. adore. But in that class, is, uh, I always make the joke that every trumpet player knows the first two etudes in every section of the Arbenz, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> when, when the pandemic and the quarantine hit, it dawned on me, I know the first three or four etudes in every section, and that's it. So I set myself, um, my first kind of challenge was to go through the entire book and, and actually learn the entire Arbenz book. How long did that take? Uh, well, if you've got nothing else to do, <laughs> not long. <laughs> yeah, it took me a, you know, a few days to a week, but um, it did bring home, of course, my, my constant thing for myself of absolutely clunky, ratty, triple tongue, that no matter how much I work on it, it gets passable. And then I'll go, hey, I can, I can do this A2 triple tongue. And then I take like four days off and there's like this mythical reset button that I've hit. And so then I go to another triple tongue thing and it's back to, you know, booga dooga booga dooga. <laughs> I, I don't think you're alone in that among the uh, Yeah, I don't think you're alone. Um, and then, of course, I'm a Jim Decker student. So there was the classic going through the Koprosh, mm -hmm. uh, all on the F side of a double horn or, or on a single F horn, all stopped, all down the octave in every key, all those sorts of things. But that's, that's a normal thing for me. I, I tend to go back to that regularly uh, because Lord knows Jimmy Decker beat it into all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember going my first week at USC. He says, now oh, you got the Coprash book. And I looked at him and I said, Mr. Decker, I've been through that book three times already. He's like, so do you have it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and then of course, uh, expanding into some of the bel canto etudes, which I love, which build a lot of strength. Galet and Belloli, especially both the Belloli 12 and the Grand 12, the Galet Caprices, just stuff to keep the strength up. Because that was my biggest concern with the quarantine is I'd keep playing, but kind of the toughness that an opera player needs, I was going to lose that because I'm just not doing it. I'm not playing through a full opera without an assistant or having to play at the dynamics that I need to. I mean, at the Detroit Opera House, our section is underneath the stage near to the back of the pit in an opera house that seats almost 3,000 people. It's like 28 and change. It's a big house. So automatically, normally, there's a certain strength of playing that I'll have to do in that ensemble just to hear myself that I'm not going to do at home. Right, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of where buying a kind of really tight crappy ready practice mute and plugging it in and playing something loud, playing like a 45 minute set of as loud as possible with the practice mute in really helps really toughens the lip up. So, and then of course the Vern Reynolds and I mean, I have to be honest with all of you. Uh, those, those etudes were, were, that was not a book that I spent a lot of time in, in undergrad or master's or doctorate study. Um, 
And so every time I go back to it, every summer I make this pledge to myself, I'm going to learn the 48, and I get to a somewhere in the 20s, and uh, <laughs> it's this little voice in my head that goes, why are you doing this to yourself? <laughs> Those things are insane. Even, even you know, today and how high the standard oh, of training is. I mean, remarkable. Just... I mean, they're really remarkable. And I'm the first to admit, I mean, part of the reason why I find myself stopping in the mid-20s, I just can't play them beyond that. <laughs> so, you know, it's a good challenge, but it was fun in doctorate study with Decker. Uh, I mentioned the Reynolds a few times. Like, don't you think I should really do these? And he would always look at me and just go, why? <laughs> he was much more of a fan of uh, advanced 20th century French etudes. So I'm just an obsessive horn player. You know, when I'm on tour playing somewhere, I go to, if, I, if there's a music shop, I love to go. If there's an etude book I see there that I do not own, I buy it. So I just, I've always found, for the most part, I mean, there are some dog etudes out there, but for the most part, I find etude repertoire really rewarding to work on. Sure. Yeah. No. And I, I think that's, you know, we have to try to look at the bright side of this, this whole big mess that we're in right now. And that's, that's one of them is people have been able to kind of dig deep into their own playing, their, their strengths, their weaknesses. And really now that they aren't playing a gig regularly, that they have to just be ready to play the gig. They're able to kind of just take things apart and put them back together. Uh, I feel very fortunate in that I only bought maybe two mouthpieces since March. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny you should mention that because, again, being the obsessive horn player, this was just like last night. I was fiddling around with something, and it, it just came to me, Andy, there's no reason why you should have 45 rims laying around. Uh-huh. I hear you. <laughs> yeah. We we could do a whole different podcast about just oh god junk like that. But I yeah. have so many former students across the country that have Andy Pelletier castaway mouthpieces. I'd say, here, try this. Well, I don't really like it. Keep it anyway. <laughs> I just want out of the house. I just don't want that option laying around anymore. <laughs> no, I, I I get it. Um so you've had kind of an interesting, you know, I was reading over your, your bio and, and stuff. And, you know, so you, you got your start in Maine, right? Yeah, I'm born and raised in Maine. That's right. And um, in Lewiston, um, which is about an hour outside of Portland, it's a kind of a depressed, formerly industrial. It's Maine's, well, then it was Maine's second largest city. Textile mills and such. Yeah, former textile okay. mills. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the only um, reason I know that is because I'm a Stephen King fan. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and and the town that it is is based in is kind of a hybrid of Bangor and Lewiston put together. <laughs> that gives you an idea of Lewiston. Um, you know, Bates College, which is a really high end private institution, is there in Lewiston, but there's very much a divide of town and gown in that city. So. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, cultural exchange between Bates and the rest of, of Lewiston. But did my undergraduate at the University of Southern Maine in Gorham, which is about 45 minutes outside of Portland. Um, and to this day, I have no idea why, but I was kind of chucked into the deep end pretty young. I started playing with the Portland Symphony when I was 17, just about to turn 18. 
as assistant principal Horn. And well, it was awesome, but it was absolutely terrifying. And in hindsight, I just think that they were insane because Lord knows there were some concerts I know I destroyed, and yet they kept on using me. So <laughs> what the heck? You know? <laughs> but I, I played played in Portland for five seasons. So I did my four years of undergrad, stayed in Maine for one year between undergrad and master's wanted a bit of a break. Um, and that's when I started teaching as well. Started at the Portland Conservatory of Music and then went to Los Angeles. So as, just about as far away as you can get outside of Hawaii. <laughs> so how, how did that, how did that move happen? Um, so, well, so looking at graduate study programs, um, my initial dream was to go to London and study at the Royal Academy of Music with Mike Thompson. And I got accepted, but it was financially impossible for me. So there was just no way I could do it. So then my next thought was, who is a graduate studies horn teacher of a prominent stature who I've had experience with, who I feel comfortable with, who I know? Um, I really wanted to have a good connection with my teacher. I wanted to feel comfortable with them. And I met Jim Decker, actually, in Maine initially at the, at the Bowdoin Summer Music Festival at Bowdoin College in, in Brunswick, Maine. There was one year he was the horn teacher. I was there. Uh, and I thought I really enjoyed working with him. Um, actually, <laughs> I was telling a friend uh, that summer, I, I was driving around with him and because um, he had not seen Maine before and he wanted to experience it, the L.L. Bean, of course, all that kind of stuff. But we were driving coastal Maine and, and uh, actually a little bit inland and we drove by some moose. It was the first time Jim Decker had ever seen moose being an Angelino. He was born in L.A. And he turned to me and he said, my God, that's the ugliest horse I've ever seen. Yeah, well, it's it's if you've never seen one up close, it's the brain. It doesn't compute. Way back when, when I still lived in Maine, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to in driver's ed. Seriously, this is true. They would teach you if you were driving and you came upon a moose, because moose tend to stop in the road when they see a car coming. They would tell you if you're going to hit a moose and you know you're going to hit it, what you're supposed to do is duck down beneath the dashboard. Because your car will tend to hit the moose mid-shin. It will fall onto the roof of the car and slide up and go through the windshield. So they tell you, if you know you're going to hit a moose, go down, get out of the way, because it's going to slide right up. Yeah, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is why you listen to the IHS podcast. <laughs> where, where, <laughs> where else are you going to get that kind of oh, info? it's amazing. I mean, I, <laughs> so uh, I felt rather comfortable with Jim. I had a good relationship with him. Now, did he recruit you? Did he kind of put that bug in your ear? Hey, you know, check me out for, for grad studies. Yeah, he, he did, but not real hard. Um, he, he knew kind of at the time my eyes were set on London. So he kind of well, was going to let me do my own thing. Um, and it was funny because there was never initially that moment of, I want to go study with Jim Decker because he's in LA and there's all these opportunities in LA. It wasn't that, it was to work with Jim. Uh, and so I, I applied to USC, auditioned by tape. Those are the days. <laughs> I'm familiar with tapes, yeah. <laughs> and, and got in. And I started at USC in 1996 with my master's. Yeah. Now, at that point, you know, 
kind of towards the end of your undergrad when you were looking at grad schools, did you know, you know, did you know you wanted to be an orchestral player or you wanted to do the solo thing or just kind of you knew you wanted to play the horn and, and make a living doing it? Or Yeah, I think it's more that third one. Um, I mean, actually, initially for me, uh, religious studies was really important. And, and when I was a kid, I was training for the priesthood. Uh, and it was just always this toss up between the horn and religious life. Well, I would imagine that that the rigor of musical training, and this is something we talk about a lot in, in at my school is just the, the rigor of musical training imparts, you know, certain skills that, you know, that, that you can use them in a lot of different ways. Oh, it's completely so. transferable. Yeah. Yeah. Creative thinking, problem solving, task oriented thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, self-actualization, you know, like you're saying, you, you had to create goals that you, you know, established yourself and you were meeting those goals. And yeah, I mean, the things that like employers dream of their ideal employees have these qualities and that's just like another day in the life of being a music major. <laughs> well, and I think not to get totally off the subject, but I think this is a really important thing about music education is that we really train our students to understand that you're training your brain, you're training yourself, not just learning a craft. So this is important that even though you may not think you're going to be a musician the rest of your life, you're going to have a skill set that not everybody gets in their training. And so it's really important to understand that you're not a failure if you decide to get out of music and do something else. But that training gave you so much that you would not get anywhere else. I'm wired as a historian. So I just like to think of, you know, how many thousands of years, how many civilizations have come and gone and all said that music is integral to human existence, to society and to creative thought. And part of, and like, it's, it's an expected thing that everybody in a cultured civilization would have some kind of musical experience. I mean, this is important. I mean, it's as old as civilization. No, um, absolutely. Yeah. Where were we? <laughs> oh, no, I, I do want to mention like, um, and I definitely want to pick up it, but when you when you made the move from Maine to to, to Southern California, because that's got to be there's got to be some culture shock in there. But uh, <laughs> but before that, that you hit upon the music education thing, and this is kind of tying back to you know you having this vision for the, the the future of the International Horn Society, and I'm I'm seeing an even more concerted effort on the part of the society to to be an educational resource. Do you want to mention anything? in particular about that? Anything in the works or? Well, a, a dream of mine, and it took off like wildfire in the AC and through various channels in the IHS is creation of an educational resources committee. And we're looking at increasing the offerings to the membership, both teachers of the horn, students of the horn, um, band directors, repertoire choices, all of these things. So we can really expand what we offer on an educational level. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're asking about why I went into the horn and why I ended up where I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, for me, it was the third thing is I just wanted to play the horn. Uh, and of course, there's there there were going to be goals. There's always dreams. You know, you fantasize of seeing yourself playing with the Boston Symphony or the Berlin Philharmonic or whoever, and whatever orchestra is your favorite at the time, or maybe brass quintet, you see yourself with Canadian brass. And it just got, it was somewhere in, it wasn't an undergrad. In undergrad, I was very much kind of focused on, 
I want to be an orchestral principal horn player who goes out and does concertos. Um, and it was really in the middle of my master's degree. I just started changing it to, I just want to play the horn well. I don't want to sound like an idiot. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> <laughs> And if someone wants me to, if someone pays me to play, oh, okay, great. Just don't sound like an idiot. <laughs> and it's kind of like, my career's kind of done that. I mean, I'm kind of nowadays seen a little bit as a new music horn player because I do a lot of it and I work with composers a lot. And I've commissioned now over 50 pieces for the horn. And it's not that I, I set out with this. It's not like I said, oh, I want to be the new music horn player and bring the horn to the forefront. No, I wanted a challenge and I had friends that were composers. So I said, would you write me something? They said, sure. And then it just kind of goes from there. Like, I enjoyed having the challenge of something new that's never been recorded, having to come up with an interpretation of my own, working with a composer to challenge the instrument and what it's capable of, but not writing something that's impossible, all of these things. And it just kind of went from there. All right. So we were when we were talking about your move to Southern California and how long how many days drive was that from Maine to uh initially I flew it. Uh, but then after I've driven Maine to LA several times and LA to Maine back and forth. Um, it can be done in four days. If you push really hard, if you're doing like 15, 16 hours every day, I like a good drive. I've done that before. In fact, this summer, had we been in Eugene, I was going to be driving it from Bowling Green. Okay. I mean, yeah. I like a good drive. Yeah. But my first, I mean, the, my first experience of moving to Los Angeles. Now bear in mind when I auditioned to USC, by a tape, like I said. Uh, I had never been to Los Angeles. I had never been to California. I had never been west of the Rockies. <laughs> so it was completely unknown to me. And it was a classic situation. I left Maine, this is, you know, mid, late of August. I can't remember exactly the date, but it was in August. <clears throat> Red Eye Flight. And it was somewhere in the 50s, high 50s, temperature-wise, in Maine. I arrive in L.A. at LAX at like 3 in the morning, 2 in the morning, and it's 85 degrees. And Decker thought it was the coolest thing to pick me up in his gigantic car. He picked me up at the airport, which was amazing that he came to pick me up. Uh, and drove me to the apartment I was going to, going up La Cienega Boulevard, which is this large north-south uh, four-lane street lots of businesses and you know strip parlors and <laughs> bars and <laughs> so we're driving up this at three in the morning i'm thinking what have i done we stopped at a 24-hour ralph's grocery store so i could have something in, in the apartment and how la is this we show up and there's a commercial being filmed in it actually no it was a horror film there's a film being done in one section of the ralph's <laughs> and again, I'm thinking, what have I done? What am I doing here? <laughs> and uh, that lasted for a while. That lasted for a few months of what am I, what? <laughs> when I went to Los Angeles, everything just seemed larger than life, you know? Yeah. yeah. You feel like you're on a, a movie set all the time, you know? <clears throat> what was the studio like at USC then? So when I was there, it was still during the time of Jim Decker, Vince Droz, and Rick Todd. Of the three that's, that's quite a trio of uh, 
Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was just amazing. You know, coming from Maine, I had no idea kind of where I stood in the horn world. I mean, I knew I had a gig in, in the Portland Symphony, and I knew I was working, but that's Maine. I mean, I don't know if anything I'm doing is worthwhile, if it sounds worthwhile, if anything is good about it. And this is pre-YouTube, pre, you know, obviously. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this yeah, is 1996. So. Um, so I get there, and it's this combination of the quality of the studio. You know, each student coming to that studio was a heavy hitter. I was there. Christy Morell was finishing up her doctorate when I was there. Um, I a handful of players. I mean, it was a really hot studio at the time. Um, and to this day, then you get these three legendary horn players who are the teachers. And, you know, they're all adjuncts. So it's not like they were there every single day on campus. They tended to have their days or Decker was Tuesday, Thursday, and DeRosa sometimes came in on Wednesdays, and Rick was on different days. Uh, but it was also Los Angeles. You always had this feeling of, or at least I did, no matter how well you were playing at that moment or how much development you were doing in your technique, if you step foot off campus, there's, you know, swing a cat, you're going to hit 50 horn players that play better than you do. So <laughs> it, it was a sobering thing of, okay, you just got to sound good all the time. USC in those years had a rubric in the catalog that said all rehearsals are open to the public. People can, you don't have to get in contact with the conductor. You can walk in and watch rehearsals. And there were these special events that happened all the time. So my first week I'm on campus, Michael Tilson Thomas, who was an alumni, of USC, went to USC back when, was going to be visiting campus. And he wanted to conduct a couple movements of Bruckner 7. And so Decker comes up to me and he says, you're playing second Wagner tuba in Bruckner 7 on, well, it was like on Friday and it was Wednesday. Hands me the part. I'm like, I've never, I've never seen a Wagner tuba. <laughs> so we go and find one that works in the instrument holdings and I had to learn it in a day and it was just that whole kind of thing of well what are you waiting for you know you produce you got to make this happen and it's very much the SC mentality at least in the horn studio and in the winds and percussion to a certain extent in those years where the mentality was we're creating the next generation of LA studio players so it was very much this mentality of you got to produce you don't have all day to figure this out. You got to figure it out now. So get on with it, which for me, which for me is exactly what I needed at that time. I, I needed someone to kind of kick me around. What was that like making that transition from, you know, you're a student, but you had the gig in, in Portland, but then you, you end up at USC and then, you know, making that transition to getting some studio work and, and starting to get into that scene. Well, I mean, first off, I, fully assumed that my first year or two years at USC was completely unbearable. I mean, I'm sure it was just a pain in the butt to everybody because I was constantly trying to prove myself because I didn't know where I stood. I felt totally insecure. And so when you feel insecure, you turn into an egomaniac. <laughs> and to this day, I'm still stunned. I have friends from that time period. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there was that. I felt behind on everything all the time. I just felt consistently behind. And 
<laughs> behind and terrified to move forward. So it was like this horrible capability of inertia. Um, there was also some difficulty when I first got to LA in that, um, how can I say this in, a, in an easy way? My entire career, I have played the wrong horn. That's the best way to describe it. The quote unquote wrong I, I, horn. I know exactly where you're going with this. Yeah. <laughs> well, when, I, when I was in Maine, um, heavily influenced by the Boston market, the freelance market, the Portland Symphony, primarily played on unlacquered Gaia rap instruments. I played on a nickel silver Alex 103. So make stood, it work. You stood out, yeah. <laughs> well, you just, well, you could stand out. Instead, you know, I was poor. I can't buy another horn. So make it work. Figure out what is the qualities of a Geyer sound to make that horn so it doesn't stand out. I then moved to Los Angeles, where everybody's on a Con 8D. The, the entire studio at the time was on 8Ds, except me on a Nickel 103. <laughs> so again, it's make it work. And I'm sure I stepped on everybody's toes about it. I'm sure it was terrible. Uh, but again, it was, it was born out of insecurity and, and terror, feeling like, you know, I shouldn't be here. What am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. Um, jump forward. Then it was on a yellow brass 103 in LA. <laughs> <laughs> then moved to the Midwest, where again, we're seeing lots of unlacquered uh, Geyers, primarily Carl Hill and some other uh, uh, Rauch, where then go on to a Gold Brass 103 and now full time B flat single horn playing. So I've always played the wrong horn. <laughs> yeah, that that that's you know, and, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds on the equipment thing because that's that should be another podcast probably. But <laughs> no, it is interesting. Um, do you feel like that's an American thing? This sort of. Uh, it seems to be getting better though. I mean, I think, you know, with uh, people being so interconnected with YouTube and, and social media, we, we, we realize people can sound great on anything. They really can. I mean, it, it's, yeah, we really can. Um, we are seeing a, a, a fair amount of homogenization in horn sound from Europe to the United States as compared to 40, 50 years ago. I mean, if you look at the differences between say continental European playing and American playing, in the major orchestras in the 1970s compared to now, there's much less of a divide. And part of that is the influence of recording. Um, but you know, my approach has always been, we play the equipment that we play on because it gives us the sound that's in our head the easiest. That's, I may be completely wrong in this, but that's my approach in that the equipment's not gonna give you the, the tone that's in your head. It's gonna make it easier or harder to achieve that tone. I mean, I know I can be given a horn and in a short amount of time, I'm going to sound like me. I may be more or less in tune or miss or get more or less notes, but at the end of the day, it's still going to kind of sound like me. And I have to admit that again came um, from studying with Jim Decker. Jim was involved in the IHS uh, horn tests at Pomona college. I've heard of these. Yeah. Very yeah. Well and, and he, he talked to it. I would, okay, so one of the things about Jim that you learned as a grad student was if you're not really prepared, particularly well for a lesson, there were certain topics that you knew you could bring up. <laughs> and Jim would talk for just about the entire lesson. So 
<laughs> and this is one of them. Um, but one of the things about that test, so you had, uh, I think, four or five players like Doug Hill, I believe, Barry Decker, I think Gail Robinson was involved. John Barrows, I believe, was involved. Anyway, there's a collection of players, and they had a wide assortment of instruments in terms of rap, metal, and bell size. The jury was screened, so they did not know what player was playing on what instrument. They played the same thing on all the instruments with the same mouthpiece, and then the jury was to tabulate what they thought. And what that horn test proved was, to a high degree, the committee could almost always guess the player. Half of the time they could guess the metal of the instrument, and they could never guess the rap or the bell size. <laughs> you know, so again, the player came through the instrument, not the instrument dictated the sound of that player. Oh, yeah. No, th that, that stuff is really fascinating to me, though. It's, uh, that's, that's so interesting. Yeah. But, I mean, there is something to be said in terms of intonation of having a section all on the same instrument. I and mean, I think it's why you see orchestras, for instance, Berlin right now, the whole section's on 103s. I don't think it's that they're made to play on 103s, per se, that if they're all on 103s kind of of the same age, there's going to be some intonation tendencies that iron themselves out because they're all kind of of the same ilk. So it takes rehearsal time away of, of fine-tuning because it's somewhat easier to do when they're all on kind of similar instruments. Any particularly interesting moments in, in the recording studios in, in Los Angeles? You know, if you had to pick a couple, couple of memories. So... Studio playing in general. I was very lucky. Um, I, I got in lucky into the studios. Uh, there was a USC event that Michael Kamen was going to be honored at, and I played at it. I played a solo piece by Kamen. Uh, and, and Kamen liked what I did, and from that point on started requesting me when he would record in LA. I, very lucky. And, 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 you know, in many ways unfair, because if there was a section of eight players, I was going to be booting one of those eight that had been playing in that octet for decades. So there was some of that, which was not particularly fair, but it was very lucky that I had that opportunity and I did okay enough that contractors started using me. I was not a heavy studio player. I have not done a ton of it for sure. Um, for my own sanity, I had to treat studio playing as a gift and I treated each call that I had like it was my last call <laughs> you know this is great I've always wanted to play in the studios I'm never gonna play in the studios ever again <laughs> so I don't you know try to some people try to muscle in or create things and that was not for me so I just kind of treat it like I'm here this is great wonderful it's never gonna happen again and then when it if it happened again this is great. It's wonderful. It's never going to happen again. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good attitude, though. Well, I just kind of had to do that. Um, because for me, studio playing was a discipline challenge more than anything else. And I think all the studio players I worked with in L.A., beyond their horn playing, the thing that always amazed me the most is their amazing, intense concentration 
and their ability to turn it on and turn it off at will. You don't have the adrenaline of an, of an audience. You don't have the excitement of a big Mahler symphony and it you know, moves up to this big climax. And you don't have that. You're in a big recording studio, bunch of players, you get music, the light turns on, you record. The thing you're playing could be the easiest that you could be not, it could A, be you're not playing at all, it could be a tacit cue. It could be the easiest thing you've ever seen. It's just footballs, it's just long tones, pad color underneath something. Or it could literally be the hardest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> you never knew. And I've always been a player that my response to adrenaline is really good if I have a chance to kind of ease in and move into it. You know, if I, if it's a four rehearsal run for a big production or something or a big opera, I'm going to be my most nervous at the first rehearsal. And then I kind of ease into it. So for someone like me, there are moments in studio playing where it was just white knuckle terror. <laughs> you know, I turn the page and, ah, and then I, the red light turns on. I'm like, oh God, here we go. <laughs> and I would look at all the colleagues in the horn section and they were just amazing, you know? People like Dave Duke, who just always amazed me. Uh, second horn for lots of stuff. Primarily, when I was there, he was second horn in both Rick Todd's section and Jim Thatcher's section. So that's something like Dave Duke. The most meatiest, richest horn sound I've ever heard live in my life. Ridiculous horn sound. But he just coasted through everything. Nothing seemed to fluster him. Um... If it was really hard cue, the only thing you'd see is he'd kind of lean forward a tiny bit more. That was it. It was wow. remarkable and accurate as could be. I'm just a remarkable player. So I always envied that. And I knew that wasn't in my skill set yet. Uh, and so, you know, it was just kind of like, again, treating it like it's my last job. So I'm not kind of putting all my eggs in the studio basket. It, that was just never for me. Um, but boy, the people who do it well, it's impressive. I mean, it's really impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And then DeRosa was, you know, legendary for that, just being able to just nail things over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's, absolutely. that's, that's really incredible. Um, well, I, I, we could go on for another hour, but well, you know, you're, this... <laughs> asking about, you're asking about studio experiences and what was interesting. Um, so I, I had stopped studio playing. So I moved to Bowling Green in 2004 to start at Bowling Green State University. And I still had studio stuff going on for a couple of years. Okay, so you're going back and forth. Yeah, a good two years or so. Um, and then it just got to the point where I'm like, this is insanity. You know, one, it's not fair to Bowling Green for me to be gone. Two, it's not fair to the studio scene that some idiot from Ohio is coming in and taking their work. So I just, no, no, no. So I, I kind of stop doing it. Um, but there were a couple of contractors in town that whenever they heard I'd be in town, I would get something if I was already there. So there was one set of chamber concerts I was doing with Southwest Chamber Music. I believe this was 2010. I think it was 2010. Um, and so I was out there for the summer. And this one of the contractors I worked with heard I was in town and got me a studio session. Uh, and it was like the one time I was playing 
lead on something. So it was kind of cool. I was like, hey, it was an ASCAP scoring session, you know, playing through new scorings. Uh, I thought, wow, this is great. But then this little voice in the back of my head said, uh-oh, it's a studio call. You're going to need Wagner tuba. Uh. <laughs> you don't have a Wagner tuba. <laughs> and, and the call was just for horn. So I thought, oh, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll be okay. And um, the, the, like the morning, well, actually two days before. Yeah, it was like the night, two days before the session started. Uh, the contractor called and said, you're going to need tuba. It's tuba and horn. Wow. So here I am panic stricken. I don't have a tuba. And then, of course, the next thought that comes into my mind is, who in L.A. is a friend of mine from whom I can borrow a tuba and not completely offend them because I've got a job that they don't have, mm. <laughs> which was horrifying. Um, the only person I could think of was Jim Atkinson. Okay. Yeah. Was, he, he was a sweetheart. He got me my first job in L.A. when I moved there playing with him uh, in the New West Symphony, playing Mahler 1, playing second horn, sitting in as a sub. Wonderful guy. So I called him up and said, Jim, I hate to bother you, but I've got a session, I guess do a call tomorrow. I need a tuba. Can I borrow your tuba? And he said, <laughs> absolutely no problem. But I'm in Alaska. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> he was on vacation. <laughs> so he got me in contact with his house sitter, who basically broke me into the house so I could get his tuba. <laughs> I brought it to the session, and as fate would have it, we didn't play a single note on the tuba. <laughs> and then I brought it back to his house with a nice note and a bottle of wine and a thank you. <laughs> but that's one of those, and that kind of stuff happens in L.A., so is it typical to just, you got to kind of show up with everything just in case? Yeah, it, it was not uncommon for, especially in the big feature film work I did. And again, I did not do a lot of it. I'm not trying to put myself up as a studio player by any stretch of the imagination. But the, the, the feature films I did, it wasn't uncommon for all of us to show up with a double, a descant, and the Wagner tuba. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because so it may be asked in that moment. Yeah, and you just, you just don't know what's going to be. On the stand. Sometimes you yeah. do. Yeah, sometimes you do. Sometimes the contractor will tell you beforehand, and that's nice. But most of the time you bring it anyway because you want to have the ability in the moment. If the composer said, I think this will sound better on tuba, you've got them there. You can do that. When I was at SC, Decker was absolutely adamant that I take some lessons with DeRosa as well. I mean, he would not budge on it. And so there was almost a full academic year. It was like a semester and a half where I was taking from both Vince and Jim at the same time. It, it was really lovely. I mean, he, wonderful, caring soul, great man, great player, great musician. I was really lucky to, to have that short amount of time with him, but it was wonderful. Oh, that's, that's incredible. And, you know, um, this is going to go out probably mid August. So we can kind of whet people's appetite for the uh, October horn call. There's a big, uh, a big feature on Mr. DeRosa, who will be celebrating his hundredth birthday in October. October fifth. Yeah, and fifth. Uh, yeah, it's you know I've I've been lucky to get to read you know several versions of the article and 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 take a look at it. It's uh, it's basically a who's who of big name studio players, and not just the horn players. It's you know the 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 amount of respect for this man, this horn player. Uh, it's uh, it beats anything I've ever seen. It's. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, people are, he's widely regarded as, as not just one of the best horn players ever, but one of the best brass players ever. So uh, yeah, absolute consistency, absolute consistency throughout the range in terms of control of articulation, timbre, just, it was remarkable. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've not had the pleasure of meeting him, but not just a, a, a top flight horn player, but just a great person too. So, um, you know, and maybe, maybe this is a good place to kind of uh, wrap things up a little bit and just maybe talk about the state of affairs now. And, you know, we were talking earlier, it, it's, it's important to be a good human being, <laughs> you know, uh, it, work comes and goes and, you know, things have been canceled left and right. But I think, you know, our humanity is, is just as the most important thing, obviously. But is there anything you want to leave uh, the listeners with? I always try to remain cognizant of the fact that no matter what levels I achieve as a player or as a teacher or whatever, th that all passes. I mean, you have a university job. You've got students where you mentioned even Dennis Brain now. They know the name. They don't know the playing but a good soul lives on, you know, someone, someone who can build community, you know, just be a good neighbor. <laughs> to, to paraphrase a, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. I think, I think we should all spend a good amount of time in quarantine rewatching Fred Rogers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Cause there, there's ways that you can make your way through life that, not only makes your life easier, but makes other people's lives easier and better. And there's other ways of doing it, but I'd rather go for, you know, let's have a good time. <laughs> I, I'm with you. Yeah, we don't need to get into this for the podcast, but you know, I've almost died a solid four times now. So, I mean, the big one was driving off a highway overpass. Oh and, my goodness. Yeah, Wee! 2008. Um, and ever since then, my approach is, well, you can put this in the podcast if you want. Uh, my approach has always been since 2008, I shouldn't be here, logically. I drove off a highway overpass. I dropped almost 60 feet onto a highway below, onto the roof of the car. It burst into flame. <laughs> I was pulled out with only a minor concussion and a broken collarbone. I logically should not be here. So if this is all added time from 2008 till now, if I shouldn't logically be here, how am I going to live if I treat this all like added time? If this is all extra, if it's bonus round. And that's how I've been doing it ever since. I, that's, that's an incredible story. And, you know, it, I, I can't thank you enough for being here today and taking time, uh, you know, 